I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Organisations are about people. COVID has reminded us of that in a very stark manner, about how we work together, how we communicate, how we make things happen. That can be functional, dysfunctional, or a bit of both. Attractor Lagan from Managing Values is a business ethicist with a focus on behavioural science. In this episode, I catch up with Attractor and we talk about how behavioural science can be used in organisations to impact on culture. We explore the impacts locally, nationally, and in an international context. Attractor Lagan from Managing Values, welcome. Oh, hi, Steve. So nice to be with you again. Look, it is a pleasure. And we spoke in October last year, and I've just got some notes that we talked about ethics in organisation, and you talked about changing the context, which we'll unpack a bit more. Focus on the long term, you talked about employer of choice. And I was interested that none of that's changed, but a few things have happened since, in particular around we're still in COVID. And you've (laughs) written a piece for the Institute of Accountants for Australia and New Zealand. So what do you think we've learned in the last 12 months, having had another year of COVID in this ethics space? Well, from a behaviour scientist's perspective, what we have learned is, I think, how to reflect. Behaviour science has identified that we have two modes of thinking. We think fast and we think slow. And when we're thinking fast, we're typically just reacting to situations. We're taking our references from the past. And that's often why we get into trouble, because we don't actually recognise the new situation and the new factors. COVID-19 has sort of thrust that to the foreground, and it's challenged us all to rethink the way we do things. So it's causing us to be much more reflective. It's slowing down our thinking. In behaviour science terms, it's been a great nudge to get us to reflect upon the way we do things. Is there a better way to do things? What are the new challenges of the new situation? What sort of new responses can we come up with? Can we redesign our workplaces so that they are fit for purpose in this new era? I think we've learned a lot. And it's mainly been in that reflection thinking phase thinking about new ways of doing things. So do you think that's not because of critical incidents as such, but because organisations, pivot has become a word, but in this process of redesigning the way that we work? Yes, it's been very externally driven and clever organisations have responded very quickly to the changing external environment. And of course, they have talked about pivoting. And, you know, before COVID, there was this myth that was abroad that people find it very difficult to change. And that's not actually the case. People will change very quickly if they can find a benefit in it for themselves. So organizations have been able to identify some of the benefits that come with this situation, such as more flexible workplaces, have been able to pivot much quicker. They've changed their mindsets. They've changed the psychological contract with their employees. They've sort of been forced to empower them in some way because they've moved from micromanagement to saying, well, these are the results we need and we trust you in your lockdown situation. We'll be able to achieve those. We can't micromanage you anymore. We'll dig in a little bit more about this 
this mindset, I suppose, and I touched on this a minute ago, but you've written a piece for the Chartered Accountants Australia New Zealand on behaviour science. That paper really addresses, I guess, behaviour science. And just wonder if we can go back a step. If we're talking about behaviour science, what do we mean? So behaviour science has become very popular now. So it's basically a collection of all the social sciences, you know, psychology, sociology, social anthropology. And why it's become popular is because we have finally accepted that organisations are actually about people and human behaviour, and it's people that actually determine compliance, not policies. So it's probably a better starting point to seek to understand the mindsets, the motivations, the contextual pressures that affect the way people respond in the workplace. So already it's won three Nobel Prizes in economics for its practitioners. And what I particularly like about it is that it brings its own toolbox. It shows how people can design for cultures of choice. But having been in the ethics sphere, as you have, Steve, business ethics for the past you know, 20 years, we often would say that people don't come into ethics training workshops in neutral. They come in reverse and they're thinking, oh, what gives you the right to tell me what's ethical? And, you know, my boss should really be here, not me. Well, behavior science eliminates all that baggage because it's a science. So it's based on 20 years of field research that says these are the factors that impact on the way people behave. These are the factors that impact on the way people make decisions, be it their personal biases or be it the sociological pressure of peer groups to go along to get along. We know these. These are predictive factors now for managing conduct or conduct risk. So it's a toolbox without all that baggage that business ethics had when we were in that field of applied business ethics. We always had to overcome that resistance first to find the benefit for people, and then they would engage. Well, behavior science is sort of baggage-free. That's what I like about it. <laughs> There's kind of two parts of that for me, Attractor. One being, I guess, the flexible approach required in organizations, and the second being the importance of how people see themselves. If I can take those in order and mm -hmm. I guess why I went with the first one is this. I heard a quote once, and I'd love to attribute it, that designing organisations is more like a cake than a car. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but, you know, every organisation's different. So yeah. how does that fit with, you know, I guess saying basically you can't have a template-driven approach. So where does behaviour science fit in that context? Well, every organization is different and it operates in a different context. So, for example, the financial markets are quite different from the engineering markets. However, they're always about people. That's all organizations are at the end of the day. They're just a collection of people and what economic rationalists. And of course, behavior science has shown that we're not actually driven by rationality all the time. We're in fact human beings and we're emotional creatures. And it's when we're emotional that we become unpredictable. And in fact, the science shows that we are predictably irrational. So where that starts from. So then you accept that no matter what industry you're in, no matter what organization you have, you've got to understand how people get motivated, how you engage people, how they come to come into your organization already hardwired with mindsets about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. So how do you surface those mindsets and say, well, when you come into this organization, this is the success formula we have for how to be successful. This is how people have to behave within our organization 
organization, can you sign up to those standards as part of your employment contract? So it's just surfacing what was always below the surface, that you have to get a shared understanding amongst people, why the organization exists, how it succeeds, and how people should be managed. Before that was just all imposed on people. Now we have to unpick some of the socialization that people bring in with them, and then put in a new model of success, depending on which industry and which organization you're designing the culture for. Attractive, you've talked about, you've used normalizing unethical behavior as Mm -hmm. a theme in some of your written work. But in part of that, we're ethically blindsided. So sometimes leaders don't see themselves as the problem or they don't understand their impact on the organization. What does that look like in practice? So as a sociologist, when I did my doctorate, what I discovered was that organizations are the length and shadow of the person at the top. So it's very important then that leaders understand themselves, that they actually do engage in thinking slowly and reflectively and identify what's the ethical framework that they're operating out of, because they're imposing that on the organization. Luckily today, the regulators recognize that leaders are the most important people in shaping culture. And so when an organization gets into trouble, the regulators go straight to the top and they say to the leaders, how did you design your culture to ensure that conduct risk or whatever sort of behavior, deviant behavior has emerged was prevented? Leaders can't do that unless they become aware, unless they surface their own biases and their own consciousness. As you know, Steve, what people find most interesting in the workshops that we ran over the last 20 years is this idea that we slip between ethical frameworks without realizing it, that we can become intentionally amoral and unintentionally amoral. So in a context where we're under pressure with our time budgets, maybe we're not physically very well, we can slip from an ethical mindset into a a moral mindset where we're no longer canvassing the ethical dimension. We are just reacting to the situation. And that's where all the risks rise. So leaders today are being asked to design organizational cultures that make it as easy as possible for their members to become aware of the ethical frameworks that they're using and which ones are appropriate. So behavior science has given them a new toolbox in which to do this. So they can, first of all, pre-warn their employees about the rationalizations they may be using to excuse poor behavior. So the science shows us that all of us think we're ethical people, and it comes as quite a shock to most people to realize that they can slip between frameworks into unethical behavior. But when you help them realize that it's contextual, it's not about their character, that they can be a different person in different contexts, so that when they're under time pressures or budget pressures, they may find themselves acting in different ways. Then the penny drops for people. Well, yes, that's right. I do find myself being a different person and operating out of a different decision-making framework when I'm in a different context. Before that, it was out of their actual awareness. They were unconscious of that. So a lot of behavior science is raising people's awareness of the ethical frameworks they're operating out of, of the rationalizations that they might be using to excuse poor behavior, and using primes to encourage people to canvas a wider range of options, to think slower, basically, rather than just reacting to situations. Okay, so we'll talk about nudges and primes in a minute. That sounds complex enough in a large organisation where you have one leader, but we know that in large government organisations, you might have a leadership group, an executive team, you might have a councillor group. 
So how do groups start in terms of their impact on the organisation and their behaviours before we even get to the point of influencing the rest of the organisation? Okay. Well, Steve, you'll also know from our work in organisations that peer-to-peer accountability is typically what's missing in organisations. And the regulators too also recognise this. And so where we have to start is accepting that we will be blindsided unless we build diversity of thinking into the management framework. So that means that the executive teams have to think collectively about how to design an organisation and hold each other accountable. No one person has all the answers today. The more perspectives you can bring to a situation, the more perspectives you can bring to a problem, the better the solution. So we've moved away from that idea of the person at the top of the organization has to have all the answers. They're the smartest person. That's why they're on top of the organization. More into the idea of the servant leader. They're actually the coach. It's about building a really good team of diverse thinkers so that all perspectives are considered and all stakeholders, also external stakeholder perspectives are considered. So you're building that very rich picture of how to respond appropriately in a situation or how to respond appropriately to changing stakeholder demands. We live in a very dynamic environment. COVID has taught us this. Hard and fast rules no longer work when you have technology innovations that come in overnight and change the whole business environment. So that agility of thinking has become a critical success factor going forward, and you will not find that in one person. So I suppose that's the leadership culture has to be designed to encourage that diversity of thinking. And I think it was you that gave me the words of Edgar Schein that if leaders aren't designing culture, it's questionable that they're actually producing anything of value. Exactly. I mean, when you ask what's the litmus test of for a leader, you have to ask the followers. These are sort of leaders that are inspiring me, engaging me, or have they failed in that number one accountability to actually serve the needs of their followers? Let's move now to behaviour science. And can we talk to the importance of, I guess, the view of self about where people see themselves in terms of lining up with a desired culture, I suppose? Okay. Well, there's some fantastic new research that's just come out from McKinsey's that shows that millenniums and the next generation find their sense of purpose from the organizations where they work. So purpose has become very important as an attractor for the best talent available in the workplace. Maybe we've all ascended Maslow's hierarchy where we have all our basic needs met so we can start making decisions based on purpose. So it's become very important for organizations to talk to that bigger purpose. I often got frustrated that public sector organizations, when they place their ads in newspapers, often say things like, come and join this organization and be part of the bigger story of creating more sustainable communities. And then when the people join those organizations, the conversation ends. They never talk about the purpose again. Added on that Gallup survey shows that only 40% of Australian employees are engaged in the places where they work today. And I think that's because leaders aren't talking about purpose enough. Many good organizations have great purposes, but they think a one-off statement in the annual report is enough. You've got to be talking about that on a daily basis, linking back important decisions to the purpose of the organization so that people understand why it matters and they see it being operationalized on a day-to-day basis. And there's a lot of this, as I said, the paper that you've written for the Institute of Accountants or the Chartered Accountants is in the show notes. If we move through from 
that linkage to purpose and how people see themselves. And we did talk last time about how people do want to comply. What's the role of primes and nudges and what are they? So the first prime is to acknowledge that most people want to be ethical. And that's a very different starting point from the training programs I've reviewed to date, which focus on basically what unethical behavior looks like and assuming that people might be engaged in that. And of course, people are basically signing out and saying, oh, well, that's not me, that's someone else. So you've got to start from where people are. So we recognize that you see yourself as an ethical person. However, in these given situations, the research tells us that you can slip into unethical behavior. So for example, when you are time crunched, when you're not feeling well, when you've got peer pressure, in those contexts, it's important that you step back and you think slowly, you use an ethical decision-making model, and you just don't react to the pressure. So you're priming people and you're nudging people to think slower about things and to expand their range of choices. Sorry to interrupt. Often the dynamic in place in a competitive environment, in a political environment, is to do exactly the opposite and to almost engage in the contest. Mm. Well, again, behaviour science was saying you have to think slow to move fast. It's all about how you set yourself up for success. We can't just keep running and reacting because the clever people spent most time designing culture and, and researching what's the best thing to do. So I think you prime people by having those screensavers, posters on the wall, checklists. So that helps people slow down their thinking. It recognises one that people may just react because we are emotional people. But when you have those things like checklists in place, you're priming them to, to seek out more information and you're giving them a nudge not to react. So it's all about design. You can't ever take the emotion out of human beings, but you can encourage them to be more rational and to think slower. Does that include awareness regarding how ethical we actually are, because I've seen you right, and there's a lot of research about the fact that we give ourselves a level of ethical authority that perhaps we're not entitled to. Well, unfortunately, we do. So the, the really quirky thing is that most people around us have a better perception, well, at least our friends, will, of, of how ethical we are than we have ourselves. So we get blindsided to our own press. So it's always good to check out with someone else. I think this is the right thing to do. What do you think? Especially someone who might think differently from you, because none of us, unfortunately, are as ethical as we think we are. And mainly that's because of the contexts that we find ourselves in. So we have a lot of aspirations to be as ethical as possible. But again, we are human beings and we sometimes compromise because of situations or because of the people in our lives. So we don't always live up to our ethical ambitions. Tractor, in that rather excellent paper that you've written that I keep referring to, despite the fact we've talked about slowing down, on page seven, there is a quick one-page explainer with 11 points, like an 11-step plan as to how to get there. And you start with a code of conduct, and then you talk about the need to be respectful and inclusive. How do they line up? Why is that two steps, not one? Well, the code of conduct is the basic foundation of an organization. It, it forms part of the legal contract that every member has with the organization. And so it's the point where your personal values meet the organization's values. So the organization basically sets its table so its people can be the best they can. And it encapsulates in the code of conduct the behavior standards that are expected of all employees. 
And those behavior standards are part of your employment contract. So they have set the table. So what they're saying in establishing that code of conduct is we recognize that you're all individuals. You come from different ethnic backgrounds. You have different levels of education. Your socialization processes might be quite different. But when you come into this organization, we're building a community of shared understanding about what is appropriate behavior. So they've set their table in establishing that code of conduct. Basically, the the main purpose of the code of conduct is to build that shared understanding of these are the rules around how we behave in this organization. And every code of conduct I've seen to date has respect as a core value embedded in their code of conduct, which says we respect the other person. We respect them as as a human being. So the way we demonstrate that respect is to engage with those shared standards of behavior. So we don't reverse to our personal values. We may have a personal value that says, for example, men are more important than women. Well, that's your personal value. In the organization, the code of conduct and the value of respect will say everyone is is equal, no matter what gender or what their sexual orientation may be. So you have to establish that core respect in the code of conduct. What's the biggest blocker to build an organization based on respect? What do we have to overcome? One of the biggest mistakes in organizations is that leaders think they can mandate culture, that they can just design policies and behavior will just emanate from those policies, and it couldn't be further from the truth. The role of leaders is to engage people by role modeling the appropriate behavior. So, for example, if we go back to our conversation around respect, if leaders aren't demonstrating respect to each other and to the people they lead, then the message goes out to the organization, organizational-wide, that it doesn't really matter how you treat people here. You can get away with anything as long as you're getting results. So that's the role of leaders, is to role model the values that are said to be important. That's why, as I said, regulators today, they don't search for bad apples anymore. They look at the barrel. Has the barrel gone bad because the leaders have failed? to design the culture to ensure that respect did become a operational value. And the best way they can do that is to rule model the behaviour. Attractor, that's a fabulous message to think on. Thanks so much for talking today. Cheers. Oh, Steve, thank you very much for having me. It's always lovely to spend time with you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.